If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today we bring you the first episode of Beyond Us, an all-new series made in collaboration with Essentia Foundation. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Us series by the Institute of Art and Ideas. My name is Bernardo Kestrup. My name is Fred Matzer. In this series of four episodes, we will explore four concepts that underpin and define the modern world. Knowledge, competition, language, and growth. And in each, we're joined by a different leading thinker to help us, and hopefully you, to see each concept in a new light. In this, the first episode of the series, we discuss knowledge, how we come to know things, what knowledge is for, and what the limits of knowledge are or might be. And we are very happy to have one of the world's most knowledgeable people on the topic of knowledge here with us today, the Canadian philosopher and champion of the Enlightenment Project, Rebecca Goldstein. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello, Fred, and hello, Bernardo. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. It's great to see you, Rebecca. It's a big topic we are going to cover today. So maybe to calibrate expectations for, for the listeners, we don't plan on um, covering the topic of knowledge uh, to any great extent. It's an enormous topic, um, but it's a topic of uh, a lot of relevance for us in society today. What can we know? What do we know? Um, and maybe we can explore a little bit of that. So. That's exactly how I would like to start. And maybe start with you, uh, Rebecca. Um, how do we know that the things we think we know are really true? I mean, what can we know with certainty? And, and, and how can we know things with some degree of confidence in your view? Yeah, well, we obviously think we know a great deal more than we do know. And um, that is a very good thing to always keep mind. It's perhaps one of the most important things. I mean, it has great ethical implications as well, because we act on our beliefs. Uh, so as far as, you know, I, you know, very little can be known with certainty. Uh, so we need to come up with lesser standards of justification 
uh, to distinguish between, you know, what we have good reason to believe. And perhaps, you know, we can say we know, although we leave open doubt. Uh, we leave open the possibility of counter evidence. Uh, but um, so, you know, we have to, certainty is very, very rare. Um, and where do I think, what do I think I know with certainty? Um, I know that I'm conscious. There is no way for me to be wrong about that. The very grounds for believing it true, render it true, right? Very few beliefs that we have have such epistemic considerations. Um, math I'm quite certain of. Yes, when there's a proof, I'm quite certain of it, although I've spent a lot of time, I've written a book on Gödel's incompleteness theorems, and so even there, you know, there is uh, room for doubt, uh, but that there is, that I'm conscious and therefore there is consciousness in the world. Um, I would say that's a really epistemically uh, special proposition. Everything else we're going to have to make do with lesser standards. I have a mental faculty to di digest information and um, process information, but I also have a feeling faculty. I have a mental faculty that expresses itself in words and numbers. So I can compare and I can communicate, communicate internally, but also with other people through words. But I, apart from the mental faculty, I also have a feeling faculty. And the more that feeling faculty is less is is uh, uh, ref, uh, is, is not having uh, emotions, the more uh, free I can feel if that what comes on my feeling screen is good information to base my decisions on. To what extent, Rebecca, do you see our ability to? intuitively feel things that felt intuition that comes naturally and not through the mediation of concepts in symbolic thinking. Uh, to what extent do you consider that a, a reliable source of knowledge? Can we rely on that? And, and if we don't, are we missing something by disregarding our feeling faculty? Look, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a very skeptical person. Uh, to me, it's uh, every knowledge claim I'm, um, I'm trying to think of how it could be wrong. And uh, um, I have feelings, uh, they are, um, I think uh, it's unavoidable to depend on them. I think that uh, the history of metaphysics, for example, is the study of temperament, right? You know, you go through and there are different temperaments and different intuitions and there's a great big gap between what we can prove uh, you know mathematically logically uh, you know a priori proof um, the empirical evidence we have and our view of the world what we need in order to orient ourselves in this reality you know that we you know, this makes us very special as the, you know, these evolved apes that we are. We really want to know where are we 
what kind of reality is this? How do we fit in with it? Are we of the same stuff or not? You know, these basic metaphysical questions. Uh, and what are we to do with our time here? You know, these are the basic normative questions. Basic, uh, so, you know, we are, we are the philosophical animal. <clears throat> and we need, you know, proof can get us so far. Experience can get us so far. We need this sort of intuit intuitive, temperamental feeling, which, which is individually variable. You know, the more you've been a philosopher and gotten into these conversations with people with whom you radically disagree about the nature of reality, the, the more you realize there, there are temperamental differences there. Some people, for example, are allergic to mystery. I mean, they have to reduce everything to something that they can, you know, understand and solve. It's got to be solvable. They can't, some people revel in mystery. The more mystery, the better. And some people accommodate themselves to mystery. You know, they recognize those limits of human understanding and they wish there were fewer mysteries. But, you know, this, this is such a temperamental difference between us and it's it's feelings it's a sort of general who knows you know what it is it's psychology um and so yes i i think that's why i so agree with uh fred's uh remarks to me before we started speaking about dialogue because it's so important that you talk to different people who have different intuitions or are filling up the gap between proof and empirical evidence and their entire orientation of the world, um, who, who feel it very differently. And, and then you recognize in yourself, oh yeah, something's, something's subjective here. Maybe it's right, maybe it's not, but um, you hold it with a little less uh, tenacity, which would be good, I think. Moving on to a very related, but a slightly uh, different topic. Um, it doesn't take much if we watch the news today, um, to see that we are living through a major crisis uh, of knowledge. The whole idea of fake news, alternative facts, mm -hmm. things that we thought we knew before uh, and we didn't even question them are being called to question. So there's a new level of skepticism. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this skepticism comes paired with an unbelievable openness to nonsense, uh, uh, um, conspiracy theories that are, well, defies one ability to to have a serious conversation um where is this stemming from uh, have we defined knowledge uh, rebecca in your view in such a restrictive way post enlightenment that it's leading to a backlash now in which people are trying to like unguided missiles open up uh, what knowledge means what it means to know something what it means to have facts or alternative facts yeah so, um, yeah, so, <laughs> so it's an extremely large question, and I don't think that this is uh, anything so very new. Um, <clears throat> there is a, uh, um, I, I spoke about, you know, when the first question, you know, what can we know with certainty? Very little, and that, so we have to lower our standards. Um, and we use these, um, degrees of justification, uh, for example, it's a very, a very important notion in epistemology is inference to the best explanation. You know, we get all this 
evidence and we try to put it together in some kind of coherent story. Um, and it's uh, extremely important, it's extremely important in science. We don't have proofs in science. We have inference to the best explanation and that's why theories, why we have uh, revolutions in, in, in science, you know, new evidence comes, it overturns, we have to come up with another theory and it's all probably true, you know, in the light of the evidence, but uh, inference to the best explanation, there's also a subjectivity there. What counts as the best explanation, you know? So one of the things that we use uh, is, you know, a coherence. We want um, a global, and the more global, the better explanation for what we are seeing. That is, uh, so simplicity counts here. Um, I'm trying to say what I'm going at here is that some of what leads to this, as you put it, nonsense, dangerous nonsense, extremely dangerous nonsense. Um, I want to talk about that in a moment um, because I feel this extreme, very, very personally. Um, but um, some of what leads to it are the very epistemic criteria that we use in our best thinking, inside, you know, the simplest explanation, a global explanation. We also, there are certain ethical intuitions that come in. We want to think in terms of good and evil. We want to think in terms of a Walt Disney movie, right? To come, you know, they're the good guys and the bad guys, right? Um, I, I, it's funny because, you know, I mentioned Kurt Gödel, who, who, who proved the incompleteness theorems. And one of the things he said, you know, in some ways he was a very uh, childlike man, he said, Life should be like a Walt Disney movie. There, you know, we know who the wicked witch is and we don't like her. You know, so that, yes, even the most, that's, you know, all of this goes into um, these conspiracy theories. You know, I have a global explanation for everything. Also, what feeds into them is the feeling of aggrievement. Life is not treating me well. It's somebody's fault. Um, the reason I say that it's not so very new and some, you know, it's new to us, we just burst, it seems, uh, onto the stage. I would like to say that every um, member of my family of my generation, including me and uh, everybody who was born post-World War II, we are all named after dead children. Why? because there was a conspiracy theory and it had global ramifications, people died, right? Uh, so my family was from Hungary, uh, Jewish, obviously, uh, you can tell by my name. Um, so this is, you know, this is, it's, and, and it was a story of a, a global conspiracy, why, how can we explain this? Here are these people in control. This They want to rule the world. They're evil. All we have to do is wipe them out. You know, it's in their blood. It's in their, you know, wipe out the infants. Wipe out, you know, this is, this is, uh, it's not something new, but it is hijacking certain knowledge bearing, you know, the way we come up with explanations, right? And so it's, it, it's a very hard thing to um, extirpate. And it's the most important question that we face right now. How do we, how do we fight this? 
Uh, one of the things is how do we address the sense of aggrievement, some of it very justified, uh, that feeds into this kind of simplified theory. Uh, but uh, yes, I think I could go on and on about this, but, but that, that's my short answer. We know that from Einstein also and Galileo or others, when they relaxed and they were not using their mind, their mind was used. By what? We don't know. The big composers, Bach, Mozart, they all knew when they go into the zone, it allows them to get access to certain levels of harmony that we recognize as very pleasant. Or so some instinctual knowledge that is not related to your ego self, your chattering conceptual mind. That is not a rational process. It's allowing something to happen. Like when the great singers, or even yourself and perhaps Rebecca, you sing. And of course you can, can do a song, but I'm not a singer. I'm very bad at it. But sometimes I try to improvise. And then there's no way that you can think what you're going to sing because you just follow where the vibration brings you. And you can then with whatever opinion, look back, oh, this was amazing or stupid or whatever, but you went on a ride on an adventure. I couldn't agree uh, more with the final state that Fred is describing. It's one of the most glorious, expansive, self-transcendent experiences that one can have, this sort of flow, the coming out of oneself yeah. and uh, feeling uh, the boundaries of yourself melting away. Um, yeah, yeah. This is one of the greatest awesome. experiences. But one can actually achieve it in so many different ways. You, you've mentioned art and, uh, yes, you know, music. And I don't only do uh, philosophy, but I also write novels. And I know this, I know this magic uh, of being taken out of yourself completely. Uh, there is no time, you know, when mm -hmm. this is happening. It is yeah. You know, and it's, a, when, uh, it's forever grateful to have this. Not everybody does, um, but uh, it, it is something to be cultivated. And it's something, um, and I think you, you actually hit on something, children have. You watch a child at play, they are lost in it. They're lost in their play. And so, you know, I wish that we could get at that in childhood instead of, teaching it away, you know, uh, and, and ra rather cultivated. So all of that is very important. But you know what? Reason can do it as well. I'm a great fan of Spinoza. Uh, and everything. Is, yes. So a book about Spinoza, he's, a, he's really the person who, you know, some people I know, they their, their mantra is, what would Jesus do when they're faced with a difficulty? My mantra is, what would Spinoza do? Right? He is my go-to guy. So, um, but you know, for him, it's really, it's rational reason, it's argumentation that gets you uh, out of yourself, you know, to a place of, and math can do it too. I mean, some of my most transcendent moments have been mathematical. So, you know, pure reason can also do this to oh, get, yeah. you, you know, uh, math gets you, you're, you are touching infinity, not just the infinity of natural numbers, you are touching infinities beyond infinities, beyond infinity, uncountable numbers of infinities, that we can do this. We evolved apes, you know, that we can touch infinity through reason. This is, again, 
thank you. Thank you, whatever allows us to do this. So I just want to say, yes, there's art, there's music. <laughs> no one <laughs> um, worships this, this more than I do. Um, I've, in fact, uh, often compromised my philosophical career by doing something so unreasonable as writing a novel. You know, I, I, that was a, my colleagues were not so happy about this, but in any case, you know, so it's something I really believe in, but I just want to say reason is a way of doing this as well. Pure reason, um, a priori reason. So it's a, it's a, that is also a, a fantastic gift that we have. No, no, I think it's a, a very, very good, I, I, I see the experience because when Rebecca is, is, is talking about it, she is reliving it. I see it, <laughs> it in action. So, I mean, and that gives me a good feeling. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> if, if, yeah. Rebecca, if, if I may, um, by the way, I, I share a lot of what you what you uh, um, related. Um, for instance, uh, very few things in the world can make me cry. But uh, if I if I'm not careful and I'm looking at uh, Euler's equation and I really think about what I'm seeing there, it's one of the things that that can bring me to tears because yeah. it. How is that possible? How can that be? Um, so, but we rely on mathematical knowledge, uh, which, which is seemingly impersonal, because although it's mental, we all seem to agree. Um, so there is an objectivity to that mental space, which is very hard to wrap one's head around. But would you say, you stress that reason, like mathematical reason, is also a form or a way of getting contact with this intuitive stream of knowledge so you left the door open for others would you say that um, intuitive knowledge related to art or to spiritual practice is as reliable as this mathematical knowledge that apparently flows from some platonic realm beyond ourselves <laughs> yes <laughs> um I, you know the this intersubjectivity that we do have in mathematics that we, we, we all, you know, agree pretty much, you know, when it comes to foundations of mathematics, oh, forget it, because that's philosophy, right? So then we are disagreeing all over the place, right? When it comes to mathematics itself, yeah, um, there is that intersubjectivity, and that is interesting. But these other things, you know, um, even, uh, well, spirituality, uh, it's a very vague word. It depends what one means by it. You know, if we're talking about this sort of transcendence of the self that we can get to through all sorts of means, if that's what we mean by spirituality, well, I, I do think in some sense, you know, to, to experience it is to believe in it. You know, it, it, is, it is also, it's a, and who can, you know, it's, um, but we do come to very different views uh, when we're in this state. So there isn't that intersubjectivity. So you do feel, okay, something individual is feeding into this thing. And so it doesn't seem quite as, as reliable. So I would, uh, you know, the kinds of things that I think are true because of when I, my ego melted away and I seem to grasp <clears throat> the all, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less certain. I would not, it's not a hill I'm, I'm ready to die on. Euler's equation, that's a hill I'm ready to, <laughs> I will die on that hill, yes. 
Uh, even I would be happy to die on that one. <laughs> <laughs> How do you see uh, this, uh, Rebecca? Do you think since the Enlightenment, we have gone down a path of uh, putting reason on a pedestal and sort of ignoring other aspects of our uh, psychic faculties, uh, uh, other psychic functions that we have as animals living on this planet? Um. No, the short answer is no, I don't. <laughs> um, and uh, but I, I, I do respond uh, strongly to something that Fred has said. Um, I use my reason to try to <laughs> um, to arrive at this point. Um, I uh, we are creatures, uh, you know, driven by evolution as all things. We are. We, let me go back further. Let me go back to physics, the most basic. We are, like all things, in resistance to entropy, right? It takes a tremendous amount of energy and resistance. Entropy will get us in the end. The second law of thermodynamics always wins. But we're put, you have to, in order to live, in order to evolve, in order to make progress, in order to have knowledge, in order to do anything, you have to be resisting entropy, right? And, uh, okay. So, so we matter to ourselves. We come into every creature matters to itself. That's how, you know, basically how we resist entropy. We matter, we pay attention to what is going to, what in our environment is going to promote um, our welfare and what's going to hurt us, and we react to it. We humans um, have this very big brain that gives gave, gives our mothers much trouble in delivering us into this world, right? As we have this, we are fully loaded. The frontal cortex is fully loaded. We are able, we have self-consciousness as well. As consciousness, we look at ourselves and we are able to ask this question to, yeah, I act as if I matter. Do I really matter? What is it about me? that makes me matter so much. And it's very humbling. And it makes us very ambitious. And we try to prove one way or the other that we're worth all the attention that we have to give ourselves just in order to bloody live, right? As, as all creatures must, right? But no, we have to come up, we have to justify our existence. We are not just homo sapiens, we are homo justificans, right? <laughs> we are out to justify our existence. We can do it through money. We can do it through competitive, you know, competition. I matter more. We can do it through our, this transcendence, right? I mean, I, I, you know, to, to experience what we experience when we transcend, you know, is to feel I matter. I'm in touch with the universe. I'm one with the universe, which surely matters, right? We can do it, you know, because we feel that God loves us. We can do it many different ways we can do it in our relationships with one another uh and so but that we are the creatures who are trying somehow to justify our existence is both a testament to ourselves you know we accomplish great things you know um mozart trying to produce that music as a way of mattering einstein trying to understand the laws of nature as a way of mattering but we also do atrocious things, you know, only a creature that longs to prove 
what every other creature just does struggle for existence, but we try to prove that we're actually worth it, could have achieved what we've achieved both in terms of the wonders and the utter atrocities. And so, yes, I again, I say, yeah, let's hand it to you, give it to us. That's it. We're, we are something quite special that we try to do this, but it also makes us fall into atrocities, terrible things, right? I come back again to this. So I think that we have to understand our species in this way and try to find Mm, you know the competitive, uh, the competitive mannering. It never, it never goes well, and it never feels good because unless you're, you know, somebody who everybody calls dear leader and won't dare to show that they're superior to you, um, you know, like King Shogun or something, right? To otherwise accept to you, unless you're a dear leader, you're gonna find somebody who's better than you. So I mean, if this is what you need, is to this competitive mannering. It's not a good way. It's not, it's not going, it's very insecure at best. And it leads to so much, as Fred has said, leads to uh, terrible things uh, for our species and for the rest of the species, for the planet as a whole, for future generations, not only of our species, but of all species. So we got we to gotta work on these things. And like Rebecca said, well, we can be idealists, but we have the atrocities as well. And that will be part of history and part of, it has been part of history and it will be part of the future. It is a way apparently to learn. And I, I, on a different level, Rebecca mentioned that resistance, yes, time space exists by the phenomenon of resistance by polarity. So indeed life on this planet of life in the universe is perhaps not possible without the phenomena of resistance. Rebecca, uh, a point that is dear to me, I wanted to share it with you because you study uh, these things and, and get your comments on it. Um, it, it strikes me uh, ever more often how dangerous it is to have a little knowledge as opposed to actual knowledge. A little knowledge is more dangerous than, than ignorance. Um, the farmers uh, plowing the fields are not talking about the Higgs boson or the quantum fields. Um, but we watching the news at eight o'clock and reading scientific magazines, uh, we also talk about the Higgs boson and the quantum fields as concrete realities that have been proven and that's it, that's how things are. But when you actually know more than what you hear on the eight o'clock news or on popular science magazine, you know that the Higgs boson and the quantum fields are theoretical tools. They are convenient fictions. They are metaphors in terms of which we can explain how nature behaves. But not only has nobody ever saw a Higgs boson, nobody ha has ever measured a Higgs boson directly because it decays before you can measure it. So these are metaphors, but these metaphors are now being taken by a, a distinguished segment of society as uh, ultimate truths, and they are using that to to beat to beat on the other segments of society. How, how do you see that? There are lots of people who are proud that uh, look, we found the Higgs boson, therefore this and this and this is right. But they do not quite know what the Higgs boson that we talk about actually is. It's a theoretical metaphor that explains the patterns of clicking of our instruments. It's not yes. something that you can hold in your hand. Um, look, I tell you, I mean a lot of scientists 
themselves are philosophical. I mean, the point that you're making is in philosophy of, of science. It's philosophy of physics. And, um, you know, it's the, that is, what is it that we're really doing? And what do we really know when we're doing physics? You know, what, what have we really discovered about the world? And it's that's just what, an example. What I meant is yeah. we're taking... Uh, theoretical metaphors and abstractions for solid facts, and I see danger yeah. in that. I think I think that that's very true, and I think you know it, it takes place not just I think in science, but I think that a lot of um, really the deepest religious thinking is it's metaphoric, right? It's it's really uh, was exactly, it's, and then people take it literally you know <laughs> exactly and, and and so this seems to be a great yet another epistemic fallacy you know metaphors can get us very far right they as you say physics is mostly meta they're models and metaphors right it's not a literal truth right and um but it's um uh so we can extend, you know, our, our, our epistemic reach, um, but it's very misunderstood that they, we forget that it's merely metaphor, and it, it it happens all over the place. You know, I, I think in some sense in science, it's not quite as dangerous. It's sort of annoying to if you know <laughs> if you've studied science your whole life, it's a little bit annoying. There are spheres of life. I think in religion, uh, for example. Um, uh, where it can, it can be quite dangerous, you know, because then, you know, it's this is the ultimate truth. This is the way it is. This is the way the world is. Everything else is heresy. Blah, 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 you know, you know what follows from that. Yeah. So it's yet another one of these little, it's a good thing, right? The metaphor, this is amazing, right? That we're able to form metaphors. I have yeah. a daughter who's a poet. I mean, her metaphors are fantastic, <laughs> right? But, um, but, uh, you know, to be human is to enjoy so many gifts that always have their dark side as well. Everything, you know, it has also, except, I think, love. Really, I don't know the dark side of love. I think there is no dark side of love, right? Uh, so, uh, so I always look for the dark side for everything. But I, I've spent my life looking for the dark side of love, and I can... So far, you're not finding. Don't see any. <laughs> I don't find it. <laughs> oh, we have to wrap up. So, Fred, uh, this has been yeah. fantastic. Rebecca, equally, um, let's leave it on that note. Uh, we started with knowledge, and we ended with uh, love as the one epistemically reliable thing. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I think it's a great uh, note uh, to wrap it with. Thank you both. It's been fantastic, uh, very enjoyable. Uh, hopefully, we will have a chance to, to do it again at some time. Wonderful, Rebecca, to meet you. Oh, and I hope next time it will be in person. And thank you, listener. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We will be back in a few weeks with episode two on competition. And I bet you can't guess who our next guest will be. I hope you really have enjoyed the conversation and that it has helped to stretch your mind. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.